welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. That's me, and I'm so glad you're here. If you like what we do, I'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so compelled, write a review. That really helps, and maybe tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. If you want to get involved in the program, visit our website, talkingbeats.com, and click Support the Show, where you can make either a one-time or a recurring donation. As we look to continue having cliche-free conversations of real substance with a diverse range of the world's most compelling people, your support is so appreciated, especially as we look to expand and increase our offerings. If you have a question, comment, or thought, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or if you wish to reach out directly, email me at daniel at talkingbeats.com. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get on with today's conversation. On today's program, we're talking the world of cyber, the world of espionage with Jacob Helberg. He's here with his new book, The Wires of War, Technology and the Global Struggle for Power. He writes that we are in the midst of a two-front technology cold war between democracy and autocracy, United States and China. On the front end, we're fighting to control the software. And on the back end, a hidden battle, largely with China to control the Internet's hardware, which includes devices like cell phones, satellites, cables, and 5G networks. It's unsettling to say the least, and I think something we should all be thinking about. Jacob Helberg joins me now, senior advisor at the Stanford University Center on Geopolitics and Technology, and a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'd like to begin the conversation where you begin the book. San Francisco, 2017. It's a fall morning. Everything sounds pretty idyllic. Uh, There's dark undercurrents, and you are rattled, to say the least. (laughs) What's what's happening here, and, and, and why are you haunted by this day? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm haunted by it, but... Uh, San Francisco back in 2016, obviously San Francisco has changed a lot for, you know, folks that have been following daily events of what life is like in the Bay Area. But in 2017, I mean, the economy was booming, the tech industry was booming. Before the pandemic, San Francisco really did feel like the center of technology. And, you know, to some extent, a lot of people compared it to living in Florence during the Renaissance. And so there was this um, paradoxical uh, you know, dynamic happening where there was the beauty of living in the Bay Area, the natural patrimony of the region, going to the Google offices, uh, which are incredibly well-designed offices and, you know, people being in a very optimistic mindset. And all of a sudden, the tech industry being hit by very, very difficult, complicated geopolitical realities of foreign governments trying to subvert commercial civilian products for nefarious purposes. What was something that made you realize uh, either then or before or or, or since, something really concrete where you thought, gee, this isn't really what I signed up for? I never had a moment when I thought to myself, this was something that I didn't sign up for. I just remember thinking about what a different world we lived in where governments were now doing things uh, with commercial civilian products uh, that 
were kind of unthinkable that nobody imagined. And obviously, I mean, this is something I'm referring to commercial surveying pro- products across the tech industry, where you just had this new trend emerging, where back in the day, I mean, you had intelligence services that tried meddling in elections by uh, tampering with election ballots or, you know, uh, engaging in corruption rings. But here you had, you know, something much more subtle going on um, where they try, they basically used um, innocuous platforms that uh, people engage with every day to try to manipulate and distort people's perception of reality as well as uh, push very dark narratives about the country and uh, undermine people's trust in democracy and in the American system of government. In fact, you write here in the prologue, it's not that we hadn't contemplated the challenge of cybersecurity. We did. Google had extensive cybersecurity systems in place and even set up an in-house counter-espionage team precisely to protect our platforms from sophisticated malign actors. Google has probably one of the best-in-class cybersecurity you know, operations uh, of the industry. Incredibly talented people work there. Um, I mean, it's, it's a company that really takes extraordinary precautions to protect the integrity and safety of users. And so part of, I think, what took a lot of people in tech generally aback, they weren't trying to hack the product per se. They were trying to use products in unanticipated ways to undermine uh, trust in, in democracy and in the democratic system of government. And that was something that I think is a challenge that a lot of tech companies in the tech industry generally simply never imagined. I mean, similar to how we could have never imagined before 9-11, or I mean, uh, some people might have anticipated it, but most people couldn't have imagined before 9-11 that terrorists could use a commercial civilian aircraft and use it as a missile. Um, here, we could have, you know, few people could have imagined foreign government employees using innocuous, benign commercial platforms as tools and weapons as part of uh, geopolitical warfare. In fact, you mentioned one of the most chilling examples of that, and we can talk about what IRA means later, but um, there was a Facebook page called Heart of Texas. Well, I'll just read what you say. The Heart of Texas advertised a rally for noon on May 21st, 2016 to, quote, stop Islamification of Texas. Meanwhile, a Uh separate page scheduled a rally to save Islamic knowledge for the same exact time when the dueling protests met in downtown Houston that nearly came to blows. As the Texas Tribune observed, Russians managed to pit Texans against each other for the bargain price of $200. Uh, Who would set up these Facebook pages? Well, the DOJ carried out very extensive investigations on a lot of these operations, and I think I'm going to be deferential uh, to their findings. They went into a lot of details about uh, who carried them out, why they carried them out, and how they carried them out. So, I mean, I would obviously encourage everyone to uh, read some of the indictments that uh, the DOJ published uh, on these topics. You know, the way that I talk about these issues is basically um, what we saw in 2016 was really just the starting point of a much broader trend about 
governments using technology to compete and engage in, in international conflict around the world. And obviously, foreign interference kind of shone a, a bright light on, on that trend. But you know, as the years progressed during the Trump administration, very quickly, we saw many other fronts pop up. And obviously, later in the book, I talk about uh, it in, in great detail about how important, you know, the hardware front of this geopolitical struggle is. In fact, I think a lot of people probably imagine that Russian interference in the 2016 election is about the worst thing that could possibly happen. But as you say in the book, that's just a starting point, as you just mentioned. What what could happen? What what that people might not even imagine or dream of. I mean, it sounds pretty bad to be involved in a U.S. election if you're Russia, but there's worse, isn't there? One of the risks that I talk about in the book is uh, the erosion of national sovereignty and the risk that because China is pushing uh, a very centralized version of the internet, very, very antithetical to the decentralized internet that we know and and enjoy today, you could see a world where China exports a lot of its hardware, internet hardware infrastructure to other countries and starts to politically envelop uh, these countries into what I call a techno block that is basically amounts to you know using 21st century technologies to recreate 20th century spheres of influence where China starts to pull the strings of other satellite states because it controls their internet infrastructure and therefore it's able to know and see all of the that country's deepest darkest secrets of their politicians journalists judges and uh therefore can control them and so what we're talking about is a very new paradigm shift in terms of what we think about national sovereignty and the easiest way to describe that is back in uh, the analog days, national sovereignty was to a great extent determined by boots on the ground. And I think that today and in the future, it's not just boots on the ground, but it's also about wires in the ground. And I think that is uh, a very new world that uh, we live in nowadays when we have to think about protecting those two fronts if we want to protect our sovereignty. And speaking about wires in the ground, you talk a little bit about the former senator from Alaska, Ted Stevens, and, and how he was sort of chuckled at uh, when, when he referred to tubes of the internet that he had been given information from an internet, quote unquote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but there is a, a lot of what you're saying has to do with a physical part that, that we don't imagine. When, when we hear, oh, it's in the cloud, it's saved in the cloud, we, we think it just exists there. But there's a whole physical infrastructure that's that's sort of half the battle half the key here what is front end that you call and back end delve a little more into this so the front end basically refers to the software layer of the internet it refers to applications it refers to the content that people see on the front and the surface of their screens the back end is really about the hardware uh, devices, the physical um, uh, hardware of the internet. So that is semiconductors, cellular devices, and submarine fiber optic internet cables, satellites. That is the the actual pipes of the internet that 
um, we don't necessarily touch with with our fingers, but that are basically the backbone for how information gets carried and transmitted across the network. What are the dangers you think regarding the back end, meaning the hardware, the the physical, the, the cables and the wires and everything else? I, I think it's in a way easier for us to imagine the dangers of of the software because for decades now we've been I'm a I'm 32 years old for ever since I can remember I've been hearing about this Nigerian prince who will send an email or, or some scam online and you know those of us who are <laughs> you know my age or your age are are, are well aware uh, yeah that's probably not a, a real thing so yeah we look out for weird things on the internet all the time I think naturally but someone like me I'd never imagined that that the physical part of all this would would be equally as dangerous and relevant. Mm -hmm. Well, the on the front end, I think so. The two biggest trends that I talk about in the book is that on the front end, we've seen um, autocrats that are using the front end to introduce a fundamentally new uh, a paradigm of speech censorship activities that autocratic governments carry out on the front end entail promoting one narrative and suppressing another. So sometimes what you see is, for example, around specific niche topics, a foreign autocratic government will be uh, have a lot of shady media outlets online, uh, as well as anonymous accounts that are going to be spewing, you know, what I call fire hosing content around that topic to overwhelm the data bank of online content uh, for that topic and suppress the viewpoints uh, around that topic of everyone else. In the olden times, censorship was about whether or not your content was banned or blocked. It was about whether information was in or was out. Today, what that means is in the world of infinity feeds, censorship isn't just about being in or out. It's also about whether content and information is up or down. Because if you're an autocratic government and you want to censor someone beyond just banning that information or blocking that information, the other tool you have at your disposal to suppress that information is by artificially downranking it, by pushing it down into people's feeds. And that is something that autocrats have been working hard at. Um, so that's on the front end. On the back end, as I mentioned but, earlier... But, but let me just ask, it means literally that to see what the government doesn't want you to see, you'd have to sit there scrolling maybe for five hours instead of five seconds, for example, to get to some post that may be objectionable. For governments to achieve their desired impact, a lot of the times, they don't have to downrank it that much because a very high percentage of the time, people almost exclusively engage with whatever piece of content pops up on top. I mean, very few people have the patience to scroll down. And so it's you don't have to push content that far down in order to suppress it. Uh, all you have to do is, you know, push it down enough that it forces people to scroll and very few people, uh, very few people actually bother, you know, going through pages and pages of results. So, so, so yeah, that's your, you know, you're right that basically it's about downranking content. You are going to go on to the back end now. A new and emerging trend that uh, we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, is about the erosion of our traditional conception of sovereignty, a redefinition of our traditional conception of sovereignty. And uh, what I mean by that is that China is a system that doesn't draw a distinction between its public and its private sector. 
And therefore, under that system, if we in the United States, where we do have such a distinction, if we allow a foreign government like China to control the, the backend infrastructure of the internet, that basically gives direct access to a foreign government run by the CCP to uh, compromise and access all of the information that runs on top of our internet infrastructure. And that gives that foreign government an enormous amount of leverage to be able to wield over the political discourse of uh, that country. In the book, I basically talk about there's three ways that a foreign government is able to engage in what I call network interference. A government can manipulate data, can extract data, and can block data. And those are the three main ways that you can basically interfere with the information environment, use your control of, of hardware uh, infrastructure in order to interfere with the information environment of another country. And the, the mix of those three tools is incredibly potent and very dangerous for the integrity of democracy as well as national sovereignty, particularly for smaller countries that uh, for who it's harder to defend themselves. That's something that came up uh, sort of recently. There were questions in the news about Taiwan, for example, uh, and its relationship with China, and who knows what's going to happen regarding the two of them. You, you've studied China a lot. What is something potential that China could do to Taiwan in, in this vein that you were just talking about, that sort of, it's a, sort of a threat that looms over everything? Well, the big threat with Taiwan is obviously the ultimate threat is an invasion. But short of an invasion, there are a number of things that um, China could try doing. If it tried subduing Taiwan into surrender without actually launching uh, a full-scale invasion, it could try either economically suffocating the island by instituting some sort of blockade. I think that is probably uh, the other you know, risk at hand for Taiwan, where it doesn't invade, it just issues a blockade around the island and basically forces the island to abdicate um, by starving it of all of the resources it needs to survive. I want to zoom out for a minute. I want to think about our relationship with China, how it's been changing. I, I have a personal history. I've, I've lucky to played there a lot and performed concerts in 12 different cities in mainland China, not recently at all. I uh, have a lot of Chinese colleagues, of course, because there's many Chinese going to classical music. I love the food. I love the people. But there's something that hangs over, and what hangs over is the ambition and the clash of mission of the Chinese government uh, with what I think we, at least me and you and most people listening to this value in the West, everything from freedom of the press to freedom to assemble to freedom to post what you want online, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's coming to a head, whether we like it or not, not, I assume, so what are we supposed to do as we look at China? I mean, this is we talk about Cold War a lot. We wonder, is this a Cold War? Uh, you address this in the book. I guess I'm getting at the idea of a gray war, this, this term that you use. But how close to the surface is all of this simmering? It's not that it's close to the surface. To the surfaces, it's that it's already here. China has been engaged in a gray war with the United States for quite some time. Um, 
I mean, a lot of scholars have argued that while the United States has believed that you know the Cold War ended in 1989, for China, from their vantage point, the Cold War never really ended. Uh, a good friend of mine, Rush Doshi, actually wrote a book recently talking about uh, talking just about that topic specifically about how for them the fall of the Soviet Union really meant pivoting their strategy, but that they have had a long time strategy of blunting American influence and the United States. And so I think it's it's been a, a, in our midst for a while. I think technology has just changed the face of what that looks like. I just want to circle back to the one a question that you pr- talked about, you know, previously about how uh, Taiwan connects to this bigger picture of of the gray war that you know we're we're discussing. And I think the reason that Taiwan is so central to this is because with Taiwan there is a real risk of a hot war, which is absolutely alarming, but Taiwan is a key piece in the gray war because Taiwan is home to TSMC, which makes so many semiconductors for the American tech industry. The Taiwan Strait is where um, you have an enormous fraction of the region's submarine fiber optic cables that connect North America and the Indo-Pacific. It's also uh, a, a major corridor a major maritime corridor of international trade. Uh, for example, Japan gets 90% of its energy uh, through the Taiwan Strait. So from a gray war standpoint, it's an incredibly strategic choke point in, uh, in the global network of you know, information, of trade. And so it's actually pretty important for American interests to uh, prevent a a, ta- a Chinese takeover of the island. I have a page open here where, where you write that the concern is that as Chinese-made technology becomes more pervasive, so will China's surveillance and espionage capabilities. Our yes. telecommunications data may even wind up crossing networks that we wouldn't expect. In recent years, researchers have used instances of internet traffic being quote, rerouted through China. Yeah. What does this mean? I mean, it's, it sounds pretty, pretty wild. I mean, this really just hammers home the point that, that you know, we were talking about earlier that once you allow Huawei or Chinese state companies to lay down the wires of uh, the, the Internet's backend infrastructure, you should be expecting that the, that the Chinese government is going to have backdoors into that infrastructure. And so... We should we shouldn't never be surprised when we see information accidentally rerouted towards China. You know, there's a lot about Russia in this book. There's a lot about China in this book. Uh, the two countries, is, as much as uh, I have mixed feelings for them, are great places of music, especially Russia. Uh, <laughs> and this program, yeah. obviously, is uh, is talking beats where music does always play a role, no matter who you are. And I am always curious to talk to people a little bit about music and what it does for them and and it, it certainly is a, a great force. It can be a unifying force. And certainly when we see, you know, Van Cliburn, uh, the Texan pianist, winning the, the gold medal at the Tchaikovsky competition, uh, when Khrushchev was ahead, you know, we, we love these cultural exchanges, so to speak. And I love going to all those places and playing concerts. Mm-hmm. What's music for you? Well, music for me is an expression of um, the the human soul. I mean, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, very eloquently and, and so beautifully described how artists are engineers of the soul. 
And I think that it's it's so true in a lot of ways. You know, music is an international language that really transcends political and any kind of party line that people have. Anyone can relate to it and f- interpret music in ways that are relevant to their lives. And I think it's, it is such an important aspect of people's daily life. I want to use your point about the fact that you brought up that you have spent time in China and Russia working you know, in, in various um, work capacities when you were doing trips for music. And to, to really make the important point that all of the ideas that I talk about in my book are really about a political struggle between political systems. And of course, this has, you know, at no point is any of the criticism that I'm directing at China or Russia, a criticism at Chinese culture or Russian culture. Um, the, the Chinese and the Russian nations are truly historically significant nations that have an incredibly rich culture. And, you know, a reason that I think that it is important to be vocal about a lot of the unethical um, practices of their governments and their regimes and, and, you know, the things that they're doing that are nefarious to the United States is because I also think that they can do better. I mean, there have been other moments throughout history when serious efforts were undertaken by both governments to liberalize and it's important that we have to re- remember that the first people that are on the receiving end of the repressive policies of their governments are their own citizens. So I think speaking out is actually an act of empathy towards the people in those countries. I'm glad you said that. And I think it's, it's kind of it is difficult for people to speak about China or Russia or, or countries that you have sort of you want to walk a fine line and you want to be critical of of one thing and complimentary of another and acknowledge the richness of another and certainly with Russia all the reasons I think I love Russia the the writers the music the buildings the museums a lot of the people all of those things run totally antithetical to Mr. Putin to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's nothing in common between the great arts, between Chekhov or Tchaikovsky and Putin. Yeah. They're kind of complete polar opposite sides. And, and I think it's important to, to recognize that, that the face of Russia today is absolutely nothing to do with the, the great beauty and the great culture. It doesn't matter when he plays Tchaikovsky at uh, the Sochi Olympics. Tchaikovsky would hate him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I'm very happy you said that because I, I couldn't agree more. There's a lot in this book about your disappointment, and I think a lot of people share it with you, with the U.S. government, with the inability to, or the unwillingness, or the, as of now, as of October 2021, lack of action regarding social media, regarding the tech world. But what do you think needs to happen for things to improve? There seems... To me, there needs to be some mass coordination, but we seem to be fumbling along just month after month. These hearings, okay, but I'm not really sure that we're moving with the aggression that we need to as a country. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I'm very much in favor of, you know, when people ask me, what do you think we should do as a country? I think in the tech industry, we sometimes talk about what we call first principles, which is, you know, it's very important for a company 
to understand what its first principles are. It's, it's uh, the principles about its governing philosophy about what the work ethic should be, uh, how things should operate, be run. What are the values that tie people together about how decisions should get made? And I think for, at, a, at a first principle standpoint, when I think about American foreign policy, recognizing and being intellectually honest about the fact that whether we call it a cold war or a gray war, that war is not binary, but it's a spectrum. And what we are currently in with China is not peace, it is a war. I think that's important because uh, when you are at war, you inherently have to act with urgency and you are clear-sighted about prioritizing your domestic and foreign policies around the overriding objective of winning the war. And I think that is the kind of determination, steadiness, and urgency that is required in order to bring about a successful outcome. What kind of cooperation has to happen between Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley to get us out of this rut? On the one hand, I think it's very important for Washington to uh, acknowledge that Silicon Valley is not an adversary, but is needed as a partner in this uh, fight. Um, I think a lot of the rhetoric around, you know, the big is bad narrative, this narrative that if you're too big, there's something suspicious or unethical about, you know, what a given company has done. I think that is a narrative that should be done away with, to be, to, to be frank. Likewise, it's also very important for Washington to really take charge of uh, the fact that it is the government's job to protect the national security of the country. And therefore, they should uh, it is the time is ripe for the U.S. government to lay down clear ground rules and parameters uh, in order to curtail uh, and be much more prescriptive with whether and how American companies are allowed or not allowed to do business in China. And I've been very vocally supportive of the government uh, in stating an outbound CFIUS framework, which would give the government the authority to review on grounds of national security any outbound investment from the United States to China, because uh, over the years, we have poured billions of dollars into China, which has created a lot of national security problems for us. And I think it's, it's important that uh, the U.S. government be able to exercise scrutiny over those, those investments the same way that we currently scrutinize inbound investments from foreign countries into the United States. You mean if someone makes a, a wire transfer out from the United States into China, uh, that should be looked at and, and questioned? I'm saying if an American company is going to build, spend, you know, $2 billion on building factories, or if an American bank is going to start a $100 billion fund that is going to invest in a variety of different Chinese companies, I think that is something that the U.S. government should look very closely at. A lot of people probably see this when they turn their iPhone over. You talk about it. It's designed in California, made in China. Okay, so the next question is, and, and this maybe isn't your area of expertise exactly, but I think people might wonder, why can't companies like Apple just say this, this is enough? We're, we're going back to making the phones in California like we used to. 
Is, is that impossible? Literally impossible? It it's never not happen. impossible, but it, it's just very, very hard. Um, and so I think the question is, um, it really boils down to a cost-benefit analysis. You know, one of the things that makes uh, Shenzhen, which is China's premier manufacturing hub, such a sticky proposition for companies is that it has a lot of, there are so many positive externalities to the manufacturing ecosystem that China has cultivated over the years that are really hard to replicate overnight. Uh, one example is there are a lot of economies of scale. So for example, if you're a company and you want to build solar panels, you can uh, find you know the different parts, or if you want to build an iPhone, you can find on one block a company that's going to build the screen of the iPhone, and on a, another block, you know, three blocks down, uh, the uh, a company that's going to build the encasing of the phone. Um, you have such a high concentration of different uh, vendors that that uh, are special that have very advanced expertise in manufacturing that that it's very hard to replicate elsewhere the other thing aside from economies of scale is human expertise the human capital china has built over the years a very very vast reservoir of human talent that have the kinds of we're not talking about phds but we're talking about people that have very technical know-how uh in niche spaces in manufacturing that is just hard to find elsewhere and is a scarce commodity. And then obviously there is the brick and mortar aspect about manufacturing, which is it's just you need physical factories and equipment and a lot of capex uh, that is hard to move overnight. So it's hard, but ultimately the reason that I think that it's worth the cost is because if we imagine a, a scenario, which I think is not impossible, where we woke up one morning and China cut off our companies from access to their supply chains, that would be uh, a cost that would be far more substantial than the relatively lower cost of figuring out how to reshore our supply chains elsewhere. Um, the cost of us not being able to access our supply chains and not having a backup plan would be absolutely disastrous for our companies, for our economy, for jobs. So I think that it's um, becoming very pressing for us to go through the legwork of starting to think that through and carry out a plan to reshore outside of China. Are there some politicians who you really admire who are working on this right now? Obviously, they have a lot on their plate. Every politician has a a constituency and, and a million issues to deal with in Washington, but are the people who are spearheading this, who, who you think are, are really doing the right thing and being vocal in public? Sure. And one of the great things about this area is that it's actually one of the rare areas that enjoys bipartisan support and uh, a, a pretty impressive amount of bipartisan continuity. So, for example, on the Republican side, Mike McCall in the House of Representatives um, has been a true thought leader in the whole China policy space. Um, there's a lot of people in the Senate. I mean, obviously, Marco Rubio in the Senate has delivered uh, very a very audacious speech on the need for us to rethink the erosion of our domestic industrial manufacturing base and the need for us to actually encourage the revitalization of domestic manufacturing. 
Um, there's a number of other uh, uh, Republicans. Rob Portman has been very vocal on this issue. Um, on the Democratic side, Mark Warner has been a leader. Ro Khanna obviously has been a true thought leader and one of the architects of um, the Endless Frontiers Act, which is uh, an incredible bill that invests uh, much needed resources in our domestic R&D. Chuck Schumer obviously has spearheaded uh, a lot of that work as well with Ro Khanna. Um, and, and so, so there are leaders on both sides of the aisle that have done a lot of really great work on this front. And I think as Americans, we should celebrate, you know, uh, our, our leaders, our elected officials coming together to solve some really important issues, uh, for the future of the country. What should everyday Americans do? I, I, I guess, I mean, you have a handy <laughs> do's and don'ts section, um, later on in the book, um, which I think is... Uh, is useful. Uh, just simple things like don't click the first link you see. Uh, don't share things without reading them. You know, they, to me, sound very obvious. You know, let's say you, you Google desk. You know, maybe you don't click the first thing that comes up on the search because it is an ad. And if you, <laughs> if you look, uh, you can discover, oh, maybe I have to scroll down a little bit to get to what I wanted. But people don't know that. And I think it's just because the internet is sort of came about by by itself. It was a new thing for everybody. And we na all navigated differently. What, what do you think people should do other than basic internet safety things? Well, I think one of the things that um, people should do in the U.S. is start prioritizing this issue in uh, the way that they vote and verbalizing their disapproval for China to their elected officials. I'm saying verbalizing and prioritizing because people already, by very large margins in the United States, support a much more hawkish stance on China. 73% of Americans now view China unfavorably. This has been a trend, by the way, pretty much across most of the free world. I mean, 81% of Australians view China unfavorably, 74% in the UK, 71% in Germany now. Uh, you know, even in France, it's 70%, Canada, 73%, because obviously they, you know, took uh, Canadian citizens hostage for, uh, for, you know, uh, quite some period of time. So it's really just more about verbalizing a sentiment that is already present. I mean, I think it's really important for our elected officials to prioritize this at the top of the policy agenda. And uh, w the only way to do that is if Americans themselves ask that this be a priority. Sounds pretty simple. I think people should do it more. They should vote for uh, politicians who, who represent their interests. And if they're curious, uh, they can Google responsibly uh, and, and learn uh, more about it. Uh, there, there's a lot of great people who devote their lives to studying China right here in the United States. Jacob Helberg, what are you going to do next? This is your first book. Oh, what's coming next? Are you going to stay in the China sphere? I, I think it's a sphere that I'm going to have a hard time looking away from because um, I've had such a long-standing intellectual interest in it. But one of the things that I've been having um, a lot of fun with is talking with a lot of founders uh, and and seeing a lot of the energy and uh, intellectual excitement that 
a lot of problem solvers are bringing to building new technologies that could potentially be important for the future of the country. And so I've actually been doing quite a bit of angel investing uh, and and talking with founders about ways uh, that they might be able to uh, better make sense of the public policy space. And so that may be an area that in the future I may uh, try to be more involved with. Well, we'll keep an eye out. Meantime, uh, thought-provoking, disturbing, as I wrote online, uh, a book and a pleasure to read. At the same time, The Wires of War, Technology and the Global Struggle for Power. Jacob Helberg, I indeed thank you. Really appreciate it, and uh, I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. The original theme music is by Ronald Barkham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse, and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.